Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. You know yourself. You don't have to see yourself to know yourself. You know what's going on in every organ in your body. You just feel yourself. You sense yourself. Because you are yourself. It's not an external knowledge. Anything that you... Anything external, you have to see it, you have to experience it through the senses, you have to touch it, you have to smell it, you have to taste it, you have to hear it. But yourself, you don't have to experience yourself through any of the senses. You are yourself, so you sense yourself. If your toenail hurts, you feel it immediately. You feel your your presence, you feel yourself. So since the whole world comes from Hashem, so therefore Hashem knows Himself, and He knows and He senses all of us entirely. In our entirety, he knows what we're thinking every moment. He knows what we're saying. He knows what we're, how we're behaving behind closed doors 24-7. There's nothing that escapes Hashem's knowledge. Hashem feels and senses everything in this world, from the amoeba to the bug to us, every, everything. So Hashem's knowledge is so intimate. He knows himself, and therefore he knows us. But knowing that is just an abstract knowledge. How can that instill within you a sense of fear, a sense of awe? As it says in the ethics of our fathers, a person should realize that Hashem is listening and Hashem is watching us and Hashem is listening to us and that will instill in you that you won't do the wrong thing. You'll have a sense of awe of Hashem's presence. As Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh told his students on his deathbed, he says, I wish, halavai, that your sense of awe of Hashem should be equivalent of your sense of awe of a fellow human being. And he brought them a, a simple analogy. He says, the proof is, when you're in public, when someone is watching you, not a king, not someone great, anyone, when you're in public, you behave a certain way. You're afraid to behave because, you know, you're embarrassed, you're ashamed, you're not going to, when you're behind closed doors, you, know, you hear that, nobody's looking, nobody's watching. But when someone is watching, we behave a certain way. But behind closed doors, we behave differently. What do you mean no one is watching behind closed doors? Hashem is watching. So what does it mean? That Hashem's presence as such a little presence to us, that a stranger, a simple person, a nobody, who's watching, who's standing next to me, has a greater effect on me than Hashem. The fact that Hashem is standing in front of me, the fact that He sees what I'm doing, He knows what I'm thinking, He knows what I'm saying, and is watching me 24-7, and He cares about me and how I behave, that doesn't affect me. But another human being does affect me. Why is that? Very simple reason. The other human being I can see. Hashem, I can't see. I know abstractly, I know in my mind, I know that Hashem knows us. He creates us. Therefore, He knows Himself and He knows us and He knows us. It's much, not only He sees us and He hears us, it's much more than that. It's much more intimate than that. He knows us, He feels us, He senses us in our entirety and everything that we do and every the slightest movement, our attitudes, our feelings. He feels He's with us, He knows us, sees us. But that's an abstraction. That's a, that's a concept. Concepts do not evoke a sense of fear, a sense of awe. A stranger, a human being, is standing right in front of me evokes a greater sense of awe than Hashem. Because it's an abstraction. I can't see Hashem. 
So how am I supposed to, how is this knowledge that Hashem is watching and Hashem sees and hears how, and knows, how is that supposed to affect me? How is that supposed to instill in me a sense of Yirat Shemayim, a sense of fear of God, awe of God, that I will not cross the line. I won't think what I shouldn't be thinking and I won't speak what I shouldn't be speaking and I won't act in a way that I should not be behaving. It's too abstract. It's not a reality. So the Rebbe answers, he says, it's not true. We do see Hashem. What do you mean you see Hashem? How do you see Hashem? He says, you see the world. As King David says, Baruch nafshi es Hashem. The Talmud says in the tracted uh, Brachot, what we learned, the first Talmudic tracted that we learned in our Talmud class, Talmud says that just like the soul fills the body, so too Hashem is the soul of the world. The body is not a machine. And the machine has an engine, a motor, that causes the body to move. Because a body without, a mach- without a, an engine, a dead corpse doesn't move. So what moves the body? The body is alive. It has a machine and an engine and it moves the body. And I can't see the engine. I just see the machine. The body is not a machine. The body itself is alive. The body becomes alive. The body and the soul become inseparable. Every cell of the body is alive. The body, you can tell, look at the difference in a corpse and a body. You look at a corpse, there's no life in there. It's a piece of clay. There's, there's nobody home. There's nothing there. The body that's alive, every cell of the body is alive. The body, this body and the soul become absolutely one. The body is completely egoless, completely nullified, becomes absolutely unified with the soul. So when I see the body, when I see a person that's alive, when the, person, the king is awake, and I see him, it's not the flesh that I see, I see the life. The life, it's transparent. It's see-through. I physically see the body, but when I'm physically seeing the body, I'm seeing the soul, I'm seeing the life, I'm seeing the personality, I'm seeing the character, and I'm in awe. That has the effect on me, that impacts me, that it evokes within me a sense of awe, because I can see. It's not, I can see the body. Of course, I can't see the soul. But when I see the body, I see the soul. It shines through. It's see-through. And therefore, I'm in awe. So the same thing is with Hashem. When you realize that the world is the body, and Hashem is the soul, because we are a microcosm. From the microcosm, we can extrapolate that the same is true with the macrocosm. Just like this, we have a body and we have a soul. And without the soul, the body is a corpse. And you don't make a single move without the soul. So too, Hashem is the soul of the world. And nothing in this world happens without Hashem. Hashem has not only created the world, Hashem is in complete command and control of the world. Hashem is in charge of the world. Hashem runs the world. You don't earn a penny more than Hashem decides you should earn. Nothing in this world happens without Hashem. Nothing. Nature, every, there's no such thing. Nature is not independent. Everything is Hashem. It's just the body. It's just the, 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 the physical. But that's all it is. Everything is really internal. It's not external. So when you see the world, and you see the world is alive, everything has life. A tree has life, organic life. And then you have the animal life. And then you have the human life and then you have the higher levels of consciousness and then you have existence the stone exists you look at the world and you see that the world is alive 
so yes, I can see the soul. I can see Hashem. No one has ever seen Hashem. But I see Hashem. I see the life. I see the world is alive. Hashem is the soul. So when I physically look at the world, I see Hashem. I see Hashem's presence. And suddenly I realize I'm standing in the presence of Hashem. Hashem is here. Hashem is all around me. Hashem is in front of me. Hashem is here. I physically see Hashem. And therefore it has an impact on me that I sense awe. I sense Hashem's presence. And I'm in awe of that presence. And it affects my behavior. I'll behave accordingly. I'll think accordingly and speak accordingly and act accordingly. Think like a Jew and speak like a Jew and act like a Jew. So this is how one could achieve the level of awe. Now in the note, he's going to add another aspect. The Alter Rebbe will now say that by looking at heaven and earth, one not only becomes aware of their godly vitalizing force, but also perceives how the world and all its inhabitants are truly nullified to the divine life force. This can be perceived by observing the stars and the planets, all of which travel in a westerly direction. In doing so, they express their nullification to the Shekhinah, the divine presence, which is in the west. As it is also seen with the glance of the eye that they are nullified to his blessed light, by the fact that they prostrate themselves every day towards the West at the time of their setting. As the rabbis of blessed memory commented on the verse, and the hosts of the heavens bow before you, that the Shekhinah abides in the West. Hence, not only do the heavenly hosts show their self-abnegation when they set in the West, but their daily orbit westward is kind of a prostration and self-nullification. We find it written that if the sun, moon, and planets were to follow their natural characteristics, they would travel in an easterly rather than a westerly direction. That they do not do so testifies to their constant self-nullification to the divine presence which is found in the west. For the four points of the compass are rooted in the supernal sifrot and malhut, the levels of the shinah is in the West. Thus, even man's eye observes the self-nullification of creation to the divine life force. The fact that the planets and the stars, firstly, they circle and they go with such tremendous speed, like rushing around with such tremendous speed. Why? Why are they constantly circling and with such tremendous speed? So this is an expression of their awareness, their nullification before Hashem. Because every planet has like an angel that embodies that planet. So they're aware. There's no awareness. And because they're so aware of Hashem, they're bowing down before Hashem. Just like when you bow down in front of a great person. You're physically bowing down. You're externally bowing down. But that bowing down is an expression of what you're feeling inside. It's just an external symptom. It's just an external expression. You're overwhelmed with a sense of awe. So you bow down. When they're in front of the king, the ministers in front of the king, they're overwhelmed by his presence. They bow down. It's not, it's not just external. You bow your head. It's a symptom of what's going on inside. You're bowing down because you're in awe of the king's presence. And therefore you bow. 
So when you physically see how the stars and the planets are, are rushing with such speed and are constantly circling, and they're going to the west. Thomas says, really, they should be going to the east, but they go to the west because God's presence is in the west, like the western wall. That, that's where God's present. Therefore, you see the constant bowing down. You see the constant nullification before Hashem. That's also something you can see. You know, we just took our children to the, to the planetarium. You, know, you see the... Today we're able to see the vastness and how huge and vast the universe is and how many stars. But you see the constant motion of the planets. and So you see that there's an awareness, that there's a... a um, there's an awareness of Hashem, that they're bowing down before Hashem. So that has an impact. That's something that's physical. And therefore, it has, an, it has an effect on you. I mean, this is uh, an amazingly novel thought. And how did um, the Rebbe come to this conclusion? I mean, did, it, did he do it, do it through observation, or did he do it from the Tom? In other words, how did Oh, the, this is not his innovation. This is mentioned. It's mentioned in the Talmud that the, that the they, they, they travel to the west, even though they should have traveled to the east, naturally. But because the Shekhinah is in the Mairif, so they're bowing down before Hashem. So in their motion, they're constantly moving around. In their motion, they're constantly bowing down before Hashem. Where is this in the Gemara? In the Gemara. Um, in Baba Basra, 25. He gives the, he gives oh, okay. the, he gives the source. Okay. You can check it up. Baba Basra, 25a. Even he who has never seen the king and does not recognize him at all. Nevertheless, when he enters the royal court, there the king is not revealed at all. It is not the place of his royal throne and the like. In the analog, this refers to the physical world in which various proofs are necessary in order to bring about self-nullification to the king. Note of the Rebbe Klita. And sees many eminent nobles prostrating themselves before one man. The person who enters and looks superficially is unable to detect the difference between him and the other men present. <clears throat> there falls on him a dread and awe. So too the self-nullification before Hashem shown by the awesome creatures, such as the heavenly bodies, enables one to be in fear and awe of him. So this is another approach, that although we can't see Hashem, but we can see the world, and we can see the stars, and we can see the moon, and we can see the planets. And by observing their nullification before Hashem, how they're constantly rushing and in motion, they're constantly in motion, they're agitated, they're in motion, because they're constantly bowing down before Hashem, and the direction that they're taking, it's not only the sun sets in the west, but also they're constantly moving, not only the sun sets in the west, but they're constantly moving from east to west, against their nature, because in constant motion, because this is they're expressing their, their nullification before Hashem. So when you see such mighty and awesome creatures, the sun, the awesomeness, the power of the sun, the stars, they're so much greater than us. And when you see that they're bowing down before Hashem, just like even if you don't know the king, you don't recognize the king, you don't see the king, you walk into a courtyard, you don't see the king, but you see everyone bowing down to one person, I know this person <laughs> is very special. And suddenly you also see by a dread and by an awe of this person. This person is awesome. You sense his presence. And you're also uh, affected by it, physically affected. So, and that's why he says the king is in the, in the courtyard. Because in, when the king is in his palace, the king, the royal king, is, he's manifest as king. But in the courtyard, it's not his palace, it's out of the palace. 
and he doesn't know who the king is. But just by seeing how all these great people, these great ministers, who are greater, greater than, than the observer, and he sees how they're bowing down to the king, if they're bowing down to the king, then surely I can bow down to the king. This is a physical thing. By physically seeing how all the others bowing down, so to hear, this uh, uh, impacts me by seeing the stars and the moon and seeing and studying your astronomy and watching, watching your, 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 your telescopes and just being aware and, just being, and seeing how the world is in constant motion and all the stars and the planets are in such a rush and constant agitated and constant motion and constantly going from east to west and constantly bowing down before Hashem. I am seized with a sense of dread and awe of Hashem's presence, the greatness of Hashem. Look how great Hashem is. So that will physically impact me and that will affect my behavior and effect that I will sense Hashem's presence. Now, it's still not a good analogy. When I see the king, I see the king. I see his face. I see him. And I see his personality. I see his character. And I'm in awe. And I bow down. I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm awestruck. But when I see the world, I don't see Hashem. I see Hashem is hidden, covered up, concealed. It's a concealment. I see the clothes. The clothes are not one with Hashem. I can't, it's disconnected. So I don't see Hashem. So how can I be in awe of Hashem? That's the question that is going to address yeah. now. Okay. That was a question maybe asked. On one day, the body of a physical king, he sees before him beyond a shadow of a doubt to king himself. He therefore can extrapolate intellectually about the inner essence and vitality of the king and come to fear him. This is not so, however, with regard to physical creatures. The divine life force is so concealed within them through so many garbs of concealment that it's quite possible for one to gaze at them and fail to be aware that their bodies are but garments of the divine life force they contain. The other Rebbe now goes on to say that it is therefore important for a person who observes physical, creative beings to cultivate the habit of immediately recalling that within the concealment of their external trappings and garments, there is to be found the godliness that animates them. By doing so, one is then able to perceive the divine life force sound within the world. So he's going to say, you're right, it is a problem, it is a challenge. And the answer to this challenge is, that we have to train ourselves how to look at this world. It's ca- it is counterintuitive. To look at the world the way the Torah wants us to look at the world is counterintuitive. Because if you look at the world very logically and very rationally and very naturally and instinctively, the, Hashem is completely hidden. Hashem is completely concealed, completely disconnected. You don't sense Hashem. You don't sense that Hashem is the soul and the world is the body and Hashem is in total charge and control of the world and the body doesn't lift a pinky without the soul. You definitely don't sense that. We look at nature, look at scientists. How does a scientist look at the world? He looks at the world, it looks completely natural. Everything is nature. He takes it to the laboratory, dissects it, looks for the rule and the law, but he does, it completely misses the whole point. It's, it would be the equivalent of taking a, taking a tear Someone cries, you take the tear to the laboratory. The scientist, a good scientist, will take the tear and dissect it and tell you exactly the makeup of the tear and the breakup of the tear and compare and, and analyze it and, 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 and give you a whole thesis on the tear. You know, he would be missing the whole point. Because what's the tear? The tear is just a symptom. What's the tear? What's the real story behind the tear? It's not the bi- biology of the tear and the technical of the tear. The story of the tear is, is the emotion. There is an emotion, a sadness. And the tear is a symptom of that sadness. 
So when you see someone crying, okay, let me take the tear, let, let me rush it to the lavatory. The person needs a little consolation. The person is crying, the person is hurt, the person is... is so the scientist is missing, is missing the whole point. Well, he's just focusing on the external, on the mechanical, on the body. But what's the real story? The real story is what you don't see, what you can see, what you can take to the laboratory. You can't take the sadness to the laboratory. You can't dissect it and can, can look at it with a, with a microscope. But that's the story. It's the soul. It's what you don't see. Everything physical is just external. It's just a symptom of what's really going on. So it's a question of reorienting yourself how to look at this world. Intuitively, it's, it is counterintuitive because it's, we're not wired to think that way. We're wired to think in a very mechanical, external, logical, cause and effect way of looking at this world. Scientific way of looking at this world. But that's completely superficial, completely external, and completely missing the point. That's not the right way of looking at this world. The correct way of looking at this world, the Jewish way of looking at this world, the Torah way of looking at this world with Torah lenses, and that takes training. You have to train yourself to go counterintuitive, to realize, wait a minute, when I see anything I see in this world is just a symptom. I see rain. What does rain represent? It's a symptom of what's going on on a spiritual dimension. What does snow represent? What does an earthquake represent? Every, water, mountains, everything in the world is just a symptom, just like in the body. When I see an eye, what does the eye represent? The, the spiritual ability of the soul to see. The eye is just a symptom, it's just the vessel, the vehicle that, that reveals the ability of the soul to see and it perfectly matches. Every organ in the body is perfectly matched to its inner spiritual energy and ability that the physical just ex- expresses. So I can't just look at the external. I have to look at the inner. So yes, it, does take, it takes reorienting yourself. It takes training. You have, to complete, you have to remind yourself and you have to reorient yourself. And then you start looking at things differently. And when I look at the tear, now I'll notice the sadness. I'll focus on the sadness. So yes, naturally, instinctively, the world is like clothes. Everything is like clothes. I look at the hand. No, I see a glove. The scientist just sees the glove, focuses on the glove. But if you reorient yourself, you train yourself, I don't see the glove, I see the hand that's inside the glove. And not the hand. The, the person that's moving the glove. The, person that, the, the hand is the person. So it's reorienting yourself to look at the inside. And that takes training. That takes effort. It doesn't come natural. It doesn't come instinct. So he's, you're right. In order to achieve a level of awe of Hashem, you have to reorient yourself. You have to be able to look at this world and see Hashem. See Hashem in everything. Once you start opening your eyes and you start reorienting yourself, and then you look at this world and you start seeing Hashem, then, then you can experience a level of awe of Hashem's presence. Then when I physically see the world, I see Hashem in the world. And the clothes don't get in the way. The fact that Hashem is concealed doesn't get in the way. In other words, he's not saying we're not anti-science or anti-logic or anti-nature. No. But you see through it. Just like the king, when the king is wearing clothes. The king could be wearing many layers of clothes. Does it interfere with me seeing the king? No, I see the king. I'm not focused on the clothes. I'm focused on the face. I'm focused on the king. I see the king. I feel his presence. And I'm in awe and I bow down. But the king is wearing many clothes. The clothes, what's the clothes? The king is wearing the clothes. It's not about the clothes. It's about what's inside the clothes. What's inside the clothes? The king. So I don't see the clothes. I see the king. It depends on what you focus on. It depends on what you see. 
it's like it's so too even though Hashem is concealed in the many clothes and, and, and there's nature and there's science and there's logic and there's rash but I see through that I'm not negating it but it doesn't interfere with me I see what's inside what's inside is the infinite light I see Hashem I, I see I see Godliness so it's like learning to learn it's like learning to speak a language when you learn to speak a foreign language before you learn to speak a foreign language first you learn how to read the letters but it's, it's Chinese to you. It's foreign. You, you don't, so you notice the letters. Once you start understanding the language, you don't even notice the words anymore. When you read and you know what you're reading, you don't even notice the letters. Because you're not f- focusing, paying attention to the shape of the letter and the form of the letter. You're focusing on the intent, on the content, on the inner meaning of the letter. They did a study where they, you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure you've seen it, where they've taken words, every word was out of sequence. And yet, you can read it, no problem. Because you're not focusing on the letter. This, you're focusing on the meaning. And I know the meaning. I, I don't even notice. You don't even notice. You don't pay attention. It doesn't throw you off. Because I, I, I'm, it's when you don't understand the meaning. When you don't understand the inner content, you don't understand the meaning, then all you notice is the letters. That's the scientist. The scientist only focuses on the letter. The shape of the letter. He dissects the letter, analyzes the letter completely oblivious to the content of the letter, the meaning of the letter. But when you know the content of the letter, of course I see the letter, but I see through it. It's not the letter, it's the content. And that becomes your focus. So it's like, it is like learning to speak a language. You can look at the world the way we do all look at it, naturally and instinctively, as we grow up, and we see the world. We don't see Hashem, we see a world. Or you can reorient yourself and learn to read the language, and suddenly I look at the world and I see... It's just the clothes. What's inside the world? Who is wearing the? Who's wearing these clothes? It's Hashem. I see godliness within everything, and then I can physically see Hashem, and then I can physically be in awe of Hashem. And although many garments are involved in this vesture, so that when one gazes at created beings, one does not perceive that they are but garments to their divine life force. There is no difference or distinction at all in the fear of a mortal king whether he be naked or clothed in one, of, in one or many garments. It is the realization that the king is found within the garments that creates the fear of him. And the same, the Alter Rebbe will conclude, is true here. When a person becomes accustomed to remember that when he gazes upon created beings, he is in reality gazing upon the king's garments, he will then come to fear him. The essential thing, however, is the training to habituate one's mind and thought continuously, so that it always remain imprinted in his heart and mind, that everything one sees with his eyes, the heavens and the earth, and all they contain, constitutes the outer garments of the king, the holy one, blessed be he. In this way, he will constantly remember their inwardness and vitality, which is godliness. He will create within him a fear of God. The Rebbe Shlita explains that what now follows answers a question. How can we possibly say that the nullification of the world to God is a concept that can be perceived intellectually? When in chapter 33, the Altar Rebbe explained that this was a matter of faith. In this chapter 2, we have learned that this is a matter of faith, that all Jews are believers, descendants of believers, and so on. Faith and intellect are not only distinct entities, they are antithetical. For example, when something is understood, faith is not necessary. Walter Rebbe, therefore, now goes on to explain that this intellectual perception is also implicit in the word emunah, 
for this word is etymologically rooted in the word uman. In order for an artisan with a talent for painting, creating vessels, or whatever, to be successful, he must habituate and train his hands. Only then will they reveal the latent talents of the artistry found in his soul. The same is true here. The soul of every Jew possesses the above-mentioned faith. However, in order for this faith to be actualized, so that one's actions will be in consonance with it, one must habituate and train himself to realize that all he sees, heaven and earth, and all of creation, are but God's external garments. By constantly remembering that their inwardness is godliness, the soul's essential faith will be revealed and will affect one's actions. His bodily organs will then follow the dictates of his faith. This is also implicit in the word emunah, which is the term indicating training, to which a person habituates himself like a craftsman who trains his hands and so forth. The rabbi Shlita notes that who trains his hands means he is of cognizant of the craft in his soul. He has a natural talent for it, but he is only to train his hands so that it will find tangible expressions in his actions. Thus, Noah contains both aspects. The king sees the individual, and he sees the king, as it were, by looking at created beings and perceiving through them the divine life force that violates them. He says that this is the emunah. Emunah, which means faith, also comes from the word uman in Hebrew. A craftsman. A person who develops a certain talent, umnut, whatever it may be. So, too, emuna means that you have to train yourself. It's a matter of training. It's a matter of training yourself how to view, how to perceive, how to see the world around you in a way that is counter, counterintuitive. So, although we explained earlier that every Jew is a believer, the child of a believer... And, but there he was discussing a much deeper, in chapter 33, we were discussing a much deeper level of emuna, of faith, where a Jew believes that the world to God is not like a body to the soul, but the world to God, really nothing exists besides God, which is totally, a concept that's totally beyond and that's what characterizes Jewish faith, and that's, what, that's the great inheritance that we all inherit, this rich faith that we all inherit, just by the fact that we're born Jewish. We inherit this Jewish soul that innately, inherently has this Jewish faith, and nothing exists besides God. We're not even to God, we're not even God's point of view, we're not even like a body to God, like God is the soul and we're the body, but it's much deeper than that. All there is is God, and that we discuss at great length, you can go back to LessonsInTanya.com. We have it audio and visual, uh, chapter, starting in chapter 20 and chapter 21. And, and there you can um, really, he discusses the concept at great length. Here he's discussing, however, a more logical approach. That just like the body fills the soul, the soul fills the body. So it's logical. You can understand that I have a body, I'm a microcosm. So what's true on a small, on a personal level is also true on a global level. That there is a body and there is a soul, and God is the soul. And therefore, when you see the soul, when you look at the body, you see the soul. So when you look at the world, you see God. 
And therefore, you're an or of Hashem. So it seems like a very logical approach. And yet, we're saying it's a question of faith. So that's what he's explaining here, that even this logical approach also needs faith. Because faith also means you have to train yourself. Because it's not simple. It's not intuitive. To look at this world and say that I see this world and I see Hashem. I'm looking at the world and I see Hashem. I look at the tree and I see Hashem. I look at the world. The world is alive. The world is vibrant. I see Hashem. It's more of a mental abstraction. To say that I physically physically look at the world and I see Hashem and I suddenly sense Hashem's presence and I'm in awe of His presence and it will affect my behavior. Hashem sees me and I see Him and therefore I will act accordingly and speak like a Jew and act like a Jew and act morally and ethically and spiritually. Let's not kid ourselves. And the proof is, how many so-called religious Jews who don't act morally and ethically and spiritually? So they believe. But it's an abstraction. Because if Hashem was more than an abstraction, they would act differently. How could you claim to be religious and act in a way that's immoral, dishonest, makes no sense? But you believe in Hashem, they do. They close their businesses for Shabbos. If someone came to them and said, I have a million dollar deal on Shabbos, they would say, no, I'm sorry, it's Shabbos. So they do believe in Hashem. So if you believe in Hashem, how could you mistreat your employees, or how could you mistreat your employer, or how can you act in a way that's not totally honest? Because it's an abstraction. Abstractions don't, you're not, you're not in fear of abstraction. We all love Hashem, we all have a relationship with Hashem, we have a connection with Hashem. But for me to stop, to be able to check my instincts and check my behavior and not to cross the line and to be able to think like a Jew and when I want to think things that I should not be thinking and to stop myself and if I'm speaking things I should not be speaking and to stop myself and to be able to stop myself from behaving in ways that a Jew should not be behaving, Hashem's presence has to be a presence. I have to feel Hashem's presence. Knowing Hashem abstractly, it's, it won't do the trick. It does not evoke a sense of fear. It does not evoke a sense of awe, of presence. So by looking at this world, how do I evoke a sense of presence? So he says, that's a matter of emunah. It does take faith. It's not, logic is not enough. Because logic won't instill, evoke a sense of fear. You need emunah, which comes from the word training. You have to train yourself, like a craftsman. It's reorienting yourself. You have to reorient yourself. It's counterintuitive. You have to start viewing the world in a different way. But, just like an Oman, someone who trains himself, who trains himself? Someone who has a natural talent. Someone who has a natural talent for music will sit down and practice. He'll develop into, into, a, uh, into, into, into something special. Into a master. So, so too, every Jew has a Muna. It's natural, it's inherent. We all have that spark within us. Therefore, when you'll sit and you'll train yourself, and you'll start consciously reorienting your, your thought process, and how you look at this world, you start looking at this world with a different set of eyes, with new lenses, and you start viewing the world from a Torah point of view, from a Jewish point of view, you'll see the hand of Hashem in everything. You open your eyes and you'll see how the world is alive, the world is vibrant, and Hashem is the soul. And even though the world is Hashem is concealed, but it's a clothes. But the, what's inside the clothes? It's the king. And I see the king, and I sense the king. When you start sensing the king, you start sensing Hashem's presence, Hashem's godliness, and you start sensing Hashem's infinite light, then you will be able to achieve that sense of dread, that sense of awe, that sense of fear, that sense of Hashem's presence, that will check my behavior. 
as it says in the ethics of our fathers, know that Hashem is watching, Hashem sees me and He hears me. But not only Hashem sees me and hears me, I see Hashem and I hear Hashem seeing me and hearing me. I see Hashem's presence. I see Hashem is right in front of me. When you see that Hashem is right in front of me, then you'll jump out of bed in the morning. And that will set the tone for the whole day. Then you'll, your whole day will be different. You'll constantly live with the sense of Hashem's presence. When you live with Hashem's presence, it's a different day. When the king is always with you, your behavior is refined. Even your thoughts are refined. You're, you're afraid. The king is here. The king is watching. Hashem is watching. Are you kidding? Hashem reads my thoughts, knows my thoughts, senses my thoughts. I better watch out. The king is here. Imagine if, a, if the king was here physically. Would you, would you dare say anything? It's inappropriate. Would you dare behave in a way that's inappropriate? Would you even think anything that's inappropriate? So for knowing that Hashem is right in front of me, check my behavior. I, I act differently. I behave differently. I carry myself differently. So every Jew could achieve this level. Now the question is, this is not for everyone. <laughs> because at the end of the day, it takes a lot of concentration. It takes a lot of effort. It's counterintuitive. We just said it's counterintuitive. You have to reorient yourself. You have to change the way you perceive things, the way you feel things. So this is not for everyone. Here, the Torah demands that a Jew should be in constant fear of Hashem, should have a constant sense of Hashem's presence. How is it possible? This seems like a tremendous amount of learning has to be done first. You have to learn chapter 42. A tremendous amount of processing. You have to process this information, internalize this information, integrate it. And then a tremendous amount of uh, applying, of application. And really, really seeing this world from this point of view and seeing Hashem within the world and sensing Hashem's presence. This takes tremendous effort, tremendous determination, tremendous zitzflesh. Not everyone has the zitzflesh. Not everyone has the... uh, the, a determination. And the Torah is not written for angels. The Torah is written for all of us. The Torah is written for every one of us. So, how are we supposed to achieve a sense of awe of Hashem even if we are, even if we are capable of achieving this, this level of realization and awareness? But not every day are we in the same level. There are some days that we're just, we're just not. We're just fried out or we just don't have the energy, we don't have the strength. And we just... We just can't reach that level. <coughs> so, what are we supposed to do then? Knowing that Hashem sees us and knowing us doesn't do anything for us. We all know that. Proof is in the pudding. Look in the mirror. <laughs> we all know that Hashem is watching us. We all know that Hashem sees us and hears us. And it has no effect on us. No zero impact. As Rabbi Yochanan Mazaki told the student, a stranger standing in the room has a greater impact on you than the fact that Hashem knows us and sees us. It has zero impact on our baby. Because it's too abstract. We're physical human beings. We're flesh and blood beings. We're not angels. Abstractions, logic and abstractions do not impact us. Logically, you can know morality. There were brilliant people who knew morality. It had no impact on their behavior. Zero impact. So just knowing Hashem and knowing that Hashem sees us doesn't have an impact. I have to be able to see Hashem and I can't see Hashem. So what do I do? So he says, don't give up hope. He says, there is an answer for all the rest of us. 
the Rebbe Shlita notes that the reason the Ultra Rebbe now goes on to say there should be also is that until now it has been explained how a Jew generates the fear of heaven through intellectual contemplation. The degree of fear he arouses will correspond exactly to the extent of his contemplation. The deeper the contemplation, the greater his fear. It also depends on how much each individual is governed by his intellect. Furthermore, it is too much to expect that all people constantly achieve a state of intellectual awareness. Yet all people are obliged to stand in constant fear of heaven. The Ultra Rebbe therefore now goes on to elaborate on a frame of mind which can and must exist constantly, acceptance of the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. This is not attained through contemplation, but rather it comes as a result of faith alone. And this state can exist constantly in all individuals. There should also be a constant remembrance of the dictum of the sages of blessed memory, acceptance of the yoke of the kingdom of heaven, which parallels the injunction you shall appoint a king over you, as has been explained elsewhere, and so on. This is also what the Alta Rebbe says earlier in Tanya. Even though, after all this, no fear or dread descends upon him in a manifest manner in his heart, still he should accept upon himself God as his king and accept upon himself the yoke of the heavenly kingdom. As Alta Rebbe explained there, this attribute is found within every Jew in a sincere manner. Because of the nature of the chosen soul, not to rebel against God, the kings of kings, this level of fear can therefore always be present. So we learned earlier in chapter 41 that even if you can't evoke any emotion, any sense of dread, fear, or presence, all you can do is just make a decision in your mind that I take upon myself, I accept upon myself the yoke of heaven, God is my king, I have the honor and the privilege to be his loyal and faithful servant, to be his loyal and faithful soldier, I can serve him, and I accept upon myself that I will serve him. And that acceptance is genuine, it's sincere. Even though you don't feel anything, perhaps because you're not capable of feeling anything. Not in this area, not in any other area of life. Not everyone is such deep thinkers or such deep, intense feelings. Sometimes we're just not capable of such deep, intense feelings. So as much as you contemplate, as much as you do comprehend, even when you do understand it, it doesn't always evoke the, the, the appropriate feeling. So your heart could be left unmoved, uninspired. But nevertheless, the Alter Rebbe says you fulfill the mitzvah of accepting Hashem as your king. Because that decision in your mind is a genuine decision. Why is it genuine? Because deep down, every Jew has this level of fear and awe of Hashem. Because every soul is connected. Whether you feel it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, it doesn't matter, it doesn't change. It's innate, it's inherent. So therefore, since deep down we have this feeling, even though consciously, on a conscious level, you can't experience it, but just knowing it and being aware of it, you're being consistent with your deepest truth inside so if you would have to create this level, then you would say, come on, this is very superficial. Just thinking about it, taking, accepting it upon in your mind. If I don't feel it, it's not real. And perhaps, perhaps they would have a point. If, if I'm not feeling it, then it's not genuine. It's not authentic. 
But since the truth is, whether you feel it or not, deep down inside, your soul feels it. Your soul experiences it. Whether you can consciously feel it or not, doesn't matter. Therefore, all you need is just to tune in, to be consistent with that truth. That is your truth. That's your core and essential truth. So the moment you just think in your mind that I will live my life according to this truth, that I will accept upon myself the yoke of heaven, and I will live my life like I am a soldier, a Shem soldier, and therefore his word and his wish is my command, and I will follow and I will do exactly as he wants me to do, and I accept upon myself the yoke of heaven, even if it's a yoke. What do you mean a yoke? A yoke. A yoke that you put in an animal. An animal doesn't want to go. You know, you ever went to horseback riding? If it was up to the animal, he would stop and eat the grass alongside of the road. He doesn't want to go. You have to, you have to control the animal. The horse is a horse. You can't rely on the horse. To make sure that the horse should not be a horse, you've got you to gotta ride the horse. You've got to very gently, but very firmly, pull the reins and say, no, you're not eating now. Just go. Give a little kick, and you go. So too, if you, we're left up to our own devices, our own nature, the animal within us, the horse within us, we, we would rather roam freely. We have a yoke. There's a discipline. There's a yoke. You can't just act as you please. Every urge and every instinct. There's right and there's wrong. You have to act in a certain way. Whether you feel like it or not. That's the idea of a yoke. So even though you don't feel it, you're not inspired. So you say to yourself, I'm not being genuine. But I don't feel it. I don't feel spiritual. I don't feel godly. I would rather run wild. But they have a yoke, have a discipline. When you're a, sol- when you're a soldier in the army, no one asks you how your mood is, whether you woke up on your left side, you woke up on your right side, whether you feel, you don't feel, you agree, you don't agree. Who cares? You're a soldier. You do exactly what you need to do. That's the definition of a soldier. You have a yoke. You have a discipline. A Jew has a discipline. A Jew has a yoke. We're not free. We're not wild. We're not wild animals. You don't just follow every urge and every instinct. You have a yoke. There's a yoke of heaven. Hashem said, Hashem is my commander-in-chief. Hashem is my boss. And it's my privilege, my honor to be a servant. Whether I feel like it, I'm in the mood, I'm not in the mood. The servant puts on the side all of his personal feelings and he serves his master faithfully. It's, It's a certain dedication. It's a certain devotion. It's not a detail. It's a general dedication. I am yours. And you're my master. Whatever you want, I will do. And therefore, whatever comes up throughout the day, you have a yoken. You have a discipline. A soldier, even when he's asleep, you can tell he's a soldier. Because he's ready to jump out of bed. The moment he gets awakened, he jumps out of bed because he knows he has a yoke. He has a discipline. He lives with a sense of discipline. Even when he's walking in civilian clothes, you can sense. There's a sense of... A soldier is going. He's someone who has a yoke, a discipline. It's not someone who's just living on his own, wild. So a Jew has a, has a discipline. We have a yoke of heaven. That's the definition of being Jewish. We serve Hashem. Hashem is our commander-in-chief. Hashem is our king. And I accept upon myself that yoke of heaven. And that's the minimum. As we learned earlier, that's the minimal amount. That's the entry into holiness. That's the minimal requirement to have any connection to holiness. If we don't have that sense of yoke of heaven, accepting upon ourselves the yoke of heaven, we have no connection to holiness. You can love and you can be inspired. It has nothing to do with holiness. It has nothing to do with Hashem. You're on an ego trip. Love, spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. It's not about Hashem. 
What's your entry? What's your minimal requirement to really have a connection with Hashem? It's that sense of awe, that sense of fear, that sense of Hashem's presence. And that's minimally by accepting upon yourself a yoke. You wake up in the morning, I have a yoke. I'm not just free. I have a yoke. I work for Hashem. I have a discipline. I answer to Hashem. 24-7. And that's what keeps us connected. And that checks our behavior. That's enough to check your behavior. If you really accept upon yourself that yoke, then you're not limited to moods. I am in the mood, I'm not in the mood. You're reliable, you're dependable, you behave consistently according to the code of Jewish law. You act in a way that's right. Everything that comes up in life, the question you ask yourself is one simple question. Is this right? Is this truth? Is this right? Or the wrong thing to do? Is this what Hashem wants me to do or not? That's, that's the only criteria. If, what, if this is what Hashem wants me to do, I will do it. Whether I feel like it or not, whether I'm in the mood or not. If it's not what Hashem wants me to do, I won't do it. Whether I am in the mood or I feel like it or not. So this is the discipline and the yoke of heaven that everyone could accept. There's no requirements. You don't need deep meditation. And it's something that you can do 24-7 consistently, constantly. And this is the one unifier between all Jews. Because the greatest Jew, the greatest rabbi, mystic, and scholar, the greatest rabbi, and the simplest Jew have nothing in common externally. Because their, their qualifications are so different, the, the verse, the, the Rebbe's mind, and the Tzaddik's mind, and the Tzaddik's heart. But what we all have in common is, we all accept upon ourselves the yoke of heaven. The greatest Jew to the smallest Jew, in comparison to Hashem, we're like simple, faithful soldiers, and we are completely dedicated and devoted to Hashem. Hashem, I am yours. You're my boss, you're my master, and I'm completely dedicated and devoted, devoted to you. So God bless the He foregoes the creatures of the higher and lower worlds, meaning they're not the ultimate intent of creation and uniquely bestows His kingdom upon us and we accept the heavenly yoke. And this is the significance of the obedience in the prayer of the 18 benedictions following the verbal acceptance of the yoke of heaven in the reading of the Shema. When we say, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and so on. Whereby one accepts it once again in actual deed, and so on. For by bowing the course of the prayer of Shmon Esre, one shows one's acceptance in the intellectual deed of one's self-nullification to God, as it is explained elsewhere. So this is the conclusion of chapter 42. Next week in chapter 43, he's going to discuss, this is the elementary, basic level of fear of Hashem. But then there is a higher level, a much higher level of fear of Hashem. And then he'll also discuss that there are two levels of love of Hashem. There's the lower level, the basic level, and then there's a much, a much greater, a much higher level. But now we'll open up to uh, anyone who has any questions, any comments. Any thoughts? As you said, you know, it's counterintuitive and requires tremendous strength and character to overcome uh, this. Uh, but you also are fighting the Yates of Iraq, right? So, I mean, is this um, idea of keeping Hashem constantly 
in our mind, in interactions, you know, the antidote to the battle of the Yitzhar? Exactly. That's the antidote to the Yitzhar. It's, it's almost like because the Yitzhar is so strong, exactly. you have to constantly have Hashem. Excellent point. Because the Yitzhar is not impressed with intellect, concepts. It's too abstract. The Yitzhar is a living, breathing uh, entity that's passionate, hot-blooded. It's seeking instant gratification, pleasure, fun. You can't come to the animal within you, the Yitzhar, and start talking abstractions, higher levels of consciousness, higher levels of energy. The Yitzhar says, take me to Disney World. What are you talking about, higher levels of consciousness? Take me to Las Vegas. I can't relate to these abstractions. It has no impact on the Yitzhar. It can have an impact on your godly soul, but it doesn't have an impact on your, on your very hot-blooded self. So for the, to check your instincts, you have to have a sense of Hashem's presence. When you sense Hashem's presence, just like you see someone standing in front of you, then you'll check your behavior. Like That was the analogy Rabbi Yochanan Mazaki gave the student. When a stranger is standing in the room, even though you have a certain urge, you'll, you'll stop yourself because you're embarrassed, you're ashamed, because there's a physical presence. So it's enough to check your behavior. So the only, and, the only and, uh, antidote, the only way to check the Yetzirah is you have to see Hashem. The question is, how can you see Hashem? It's counterintuitive. So the answer is you have to train yourself because it's not just the Yetzirah. Even our intellect, the way we're wired, we're not wired to see Hashem. We're wired, we see the world from a very scientific, a very logical, rational viewpoint. We don't see the infinite light. We don't see the godliness. We don't see Hashem within the world. It's a matter of reorienting yourself and training yourself to see the world. You know, you have to change your lenses. You have to see the world from a Torah point of view, from a Jewish point of view, from a, from a, different, a different perspective. Then, um, is it preferable to, to stick with pure Amuna and teach a, a student of Torah to just stick with Amuna and just rely on it? Or is it the other extreme where you say to someone, seek out the truth, ask Hashem to send you messages, signs, answers, dreams, the truth, the internet messages, people's stories, seek out miracles? Or is it somewhere in the middle? Both. The answer is both. You need both. And, and as we just learned, emuna itself could be very abstract. Emuna means that you're born with a talent, like a person that's born with a talent. But then you need emuna, you have to train in order that it should change your conscious way of thinking. It should penetrate through your consciousness. That as a result of the emuna, you start looking at the world differently. Then you have to process the emuna. You have to internalize the emuna. You have to integrate the emuna. That's a matter of engaging your mind. You have to so then all of these things help a person to reorient yourself, to think differently, to see it from a different point of view. So emunah is like from the top down, but then you also need from the bottom up in order for you to really change, in order for you to really be able to see Hashem and see Hashem's presence, emunah is too abstract. Emunah will not affect you. Jeff, want to that If you reach this level, I don't see how you could function in the world. Why? Because of the... You get, to a, you get to a point where the awe is something like we say in the, in the morning prayer, before we say it's going to Esrei, that we have to give us strength to say the prayer because you're at that level that you're too overwhelmed. Well, you know, I, I can only speak for myself. I don't think that'll ever be a problem. Halavai. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you're sitting at the desk and, and Hashem's presence? It's a good point, actually, because it says that's the difference between Shabbos 
and, and the weekday. Why on Shabbos you're not allowed to work? And if you work, you lose your life. And the weekday you are allowed to work. Because Shabbos, you're like standing in the king's presence. Imagine you're in the palace, you're in the king's presence, and suddenly you start working. That's, that, that's, a, that's a rebellion against the king. you off with your head. During the week, Hashem is hidden. Hashem is concealed. So therefore, the king is not standing in front of you. Therefore, I can work. Not only am I allowed to work, it's a mitzvah to work during the week. Six days a week. But on Shabbos, I'm not allowed to work. Or, you have, they have different variations. In the Shemur Nesra, like we just concluded the chapter. In Shemur Nesra, you're standing still. You're not allowed to interrupt. You bow down. Because when you reach the higher levels of consciousness in the Shemur Nesra, in the silent prayer, you feel Hashem's presence. You say, Hashem, open my mouth. I can't even speak. But after Shemur Nesra, you're allowed to. So you have different levels. So it's not like Hashem's presence is always so felt that you couldn't even move. Um, but it's, it's just, a minimal, just a minimal amount, at least, you should feel Hashem's presence, at least, like you would feel a stranger's presence. And therefore, just check your behavior. Work, go about your life, but always carry yourself with dignity. Never speak foul language. Never curse. If you, if you felt that Hashem was in front of you, I would never lose myself and start cursing and using foul language. Hashem is here. Even thinking. How can I think thoughts that I'm not allowed to think? Hashem is here. Or behave in a way that I'm not allowed to behave. So it's enough to check your behavior. On Shabbos, on Shabbat you reach a higher level. Then you really feel Hashem's presence. You physically bow down. Are you not allowed to work on Shabbos? Because then you're elevated. Shabbos elevates us to a higher level. So you have different variations. But at least the minimal level. And halavai, Rabbi Yochum Mazak halavai, we should reach the minimal level. I don't think we have anything to worry about. Uh, simple people like us have nothing to worry about. We're going to reach such a level that we'll st- simply start trembling and we, and we won't be able to work. You mentioned that, you know, God, Hashem, is our boss. Um, I thought that was really interesting because when you think about human nature, your boss at work, you know, when they leave, you act differently. <laughs> And I just think that it's interesting to think about that because I think, you know, general, I mean, some people don't act differently, but I think, you know, generally people do. So how do you overcome that human nature aspect of yourself to Hashem is not in your presence, your boss is not there, but you have to act as if they are? It's very, like, is it just a training? Well, uh, also, you know that this boss, he never leaves. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you never get a break from this boss. <laughs> this boss is 24-7. There's no place you can hide. There's no place you can run. That's, what, that's the whole point that we're just learning in this chapter. You have to train yourself to realize, to see Hashem. That it's not that you can't see Hashem. Because if you can't see Hashem, then it won't have the, the, the right impact on you. Because an abstraction doesn't affect you. Like I say, the boss leaves the room. It doesn't, it's not the same. Um, so just knowing that Hashem sees us it's not the same. You have to see Hashem also. And that's what we learned today, that you are able to see Hashem. It's a matter of reorienting, looking at the world and seeing Hashem. Realizing this world is just the body or the clothes, but within it is Hashem. Hashem is animating, Hashem is creating, Hashem is sustaining. Once you reorient yourself to start seeing it that way, in a counterintuitive way, then the faith that you have becomes something that's real and palpable enough to check your Yetzirah, enough to check your instincts. That I want to behave a certain way, but I feel Hashem's presence. Now, it's not stultifying. It's not limiting. It's not imprisoned. It's not like we're imprisoned by Hashem. There's nowhere to run, and nowhere to hide, nowhere to escape. It's actually elevating. It lifts you up to a whole different level. 
you know, you, you live a dignified life. I am Hashem's soldier. I am Hashem's. It's an honor to be his, his servant. It's an honor to be of constant service to him 24 7. You live a different type of life. It's an elevated life. It says the servant of the king is like the king. There's a certain of the royalty that rubs off, a certain of the magic of the royalty that rubs off in the servants. You know, they carry themselves with royal dignity. And that's why there's an awe of the Jew. Because whether the Jew knows it or not, or likes it or not, or wants it or not, we are Hashem's servants. And therefore, a Jew carries some, somewhat of that royal dignity. Now, if you can live it, and live it 24-7 consistently by leading a Jewish life, it's, it, it's a very rewarding life. It's a rich life. It's a rewarding life. It's a rich life. It's a dignified life. It's not that Hashem is, we have no choice and we're forced. And it's a wholesome life. It's a wonderful life. It's a beautiful life. It's a good life. But you need that discipline, because left our own devices, you know, we, we would rather run wild. So it's for our own good. To have this, this yoke of heaven is actually for our own good. Yeah. You know, and then you can harness the animal within us. And then the animal, you know, the animal may complain once in a while, but the animal is happy. A person who leads a Jewish life, it's a very satisfying life. Because look at the bottom line. You know what it means? That once a week on Shabbos, you sit with your family. How many, how many families get together and sit around the table? and sit without distractions, this one running to the TV, and this one running to the internet, this one running to the PlayStation, just sitting around and having a discussion, and discussing a concept, and discussing the, the, the Torah portion of the week. I mean, it just, it just by, by, by default, just living a Jewish life, it, it's, it's elevating. It's so enriching. It's so, it's, the reward is in the lifestyle. It's such an elevating, uplifted lifestyle. So it's not like Hashem, oh, you have no choice. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. I'm, Hashem, I'm trapped by this boss that I can't escape from. It's for our own good. It's for our own benefit. It elevates us. That's the difference. A right. job you might not necessarily feel passionate about. Right. But Hashem right. and being right. Jewish. Exactly. So you can even develop a, a level where, you, like you say, you're passionate. You even enjoy it. Right. Not all the time. Maybe sometimes you, yes, you have to force yourself, but force yourself, so what? But there are moments, there are times when you can, you can like in a holiday, special moments, peak experiences, you feel inspired. Suddenly it hits home. Everything that you've been doing, you've been forcing yourself to do, suddenly you feel inspired, uplifted, and it gives you energy. And those memories can, could carry you. you. You know that from time to time you'll experience that. The Rebbe would always remind us that we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like ours, and there never will be. We are the transitional generation, the last generation of Golos, of exile, and we will be the first generation of Geula, of redemption. What an awesome privilege we have, and what a sacred responsibility we carry on our shoulders. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring the curtain down on the Golas once and for all? Well, Mashiach himself gave the secret away in his famous encounter with the Baal Shem Tev. He tells the Baal Shem Tev that when your wellsprings and the teachings of Hasidus will spread to every corner of the world, then and only then will Mashiach come. And therefore the Alter Rebbe sacrificed his life to carry out this directive to the Baal Shem Tev by writing and publishing the Tanya. And all the Rebbe's sacrificed themselves to publicize and to expound on the teachings of the Tanya. And the Rebbe, the seventh, 
the Shabbos of all the Rebbes, published over 6,000 Tanyas, literally in every city of the world. And now, for the first time in history, through LessonsInTanya.com, Tanya in depth is available and accessible 24-6 to hundreds of thousands, Jews as well as London, in dozens of countries all around the world. Now that you've had the personal experience and the pleasure to study the Tanya, we ask you to please partner with us to make the entire Tanya available and easily accessible to each and every Jew and to the entire world. Please help turn the wish of Mashiach, the dream of the Alter Rebbe, and the vision of the Rebbe into a reality. On behalf of all of us here at LessonsInTanya.com, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. And a special thank you for the good deed that you're about to do. In honor of your tzedakah, we will merit the coming of Mashiach now when we'll learn Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself. Thank you.